Hey there, California listeners. You've probably heard our crooked founders, John and Tommy, at the top of the show due to some really wacky, undemocratic, super weird laws. A small minority of California voters have forced a recall of Governor Gavin Newsom. I just want to reiterate it here because it's such an important issue. If, like me, you are a registered voter, check your mail for a ballot, fill it out, and return it by September 14th, make sure you vote no on question one, should Governor Newsom be recalled? No. And to leave question two blank. I also want you to know that what I just said was not authorized by a candidate or a committee, controlled by a candidate. Okay, this is important. Visit votesaveamerica.com slash California to learn more. We're thrilled to welcome... Nine-year NBA veteran, Jeremy Lin, currently of the G League Santa Cruz Warriors, formerly of the Hawks, the Nets, the Lakers, and of course, very close to my heart, the Knicks. Uh, Jeremy recently sparked a, a lot of conversation regarding the increasingly dangerous climate for Asian Americans on a Facebook post from a week ago, quote, being an Asian American doesn't mean we don't experience poverty and racism. Being in a nine-year NBA veteran doesn't protect me from being called coronavirus on the court. Being a man of faith doesn't mean I don't fight for justice for myself and for others. Uh, it's our honor to have Jeremy Lin here. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's good to see you again virtually. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually really contemplating my background now that I see yours with the, uh, the purple light. Yeah, his his is nice. Yeah, Jason got the good vibes going on. Like that was not part of the uh, prep media prep for this, where I was supposed to have the coolest background and the bookshelf and all that. But no, it was awesome to see you. And then Renee, congrats again on everything, making history with the ownership. That's super cool. Um, and so I think, you know, I'm definitely rooting for you. And that was uh, a big step. So let's go. Thank you. I like that. So Jeremy, uh, tell us about this post. What were you trying to highlight? What issues were you uh, trying to bring to people's attention? I mean, I think the biggest thing by far in a way is the post is about, you know, and that's the thing with headlines. It's not, you know, a woe is me. Look, I uh, went through this. It's uh, totally about. The Asian Americans who are getting beat, burned, spit on, uh, yelled at, punched, stabbed, robbed. And uh, there's just a lot going on there across the nation. And, you know, I can't explain to you how many people, even in the bubble, in the G League bubble, how many people came up to me after the post and said, I had no idea this was going on. I had no idea this was going on. This is actually our whole team ended up talking about it. And it was just uh, amazing to see that, you know, obviously near and dear. And so... With the, the headlines and the things I'm looking at, my news cycle, um, I'll see a lot of these things. But I was just blown away at how much support the, the rest of the G League players, even people I never met before, staff members, players, all of that were just like, wow, that was amazing. And I had no idea. I start, just started Googling stuff and, and I was shocked at what I saw. Yeah. You know, you talked about the G League. I covered the G League this year and it was a big topic because... Obviously, the NBA, the G League, the WNBA, the focus is to be more inclusive. And so do you think, like, why do you think that there's such an emphasis when it comes to Black Lives Matter? You know, it's it's widely accepted that there's racism and different things going on. But why do you think that there's a difference when it comes to Asian culture and that people necessarily don't know what's going on? That's interesting. I think it's such a complicated, I mean, the answer would probably be complicated and something far beyond what I 
could say from an expert opinion, but from if you're going to ask me right now, based off what I know, I think it's it's multiple things. I mean, I think there is this model minority thing that has been multi-generational where it's kind of just like, look, you know, as an Asian American, you put your head down, you work hard and you abide by the rules, whatever the people in power tell you the rules are and, and you don't say anything. And I don't think that's the right way to go about it. But I think, you know, when you think about the first immigrants coming over and there's language barriers and they're just trying to make a living and they're just trying to survive, the last thing they want to do is ruffle feathers. Um, and, and so I think there's there's a lot of that. In terms of how the Black community has unified and rallied and, and drawn support and also, yeah. you know, built awareness, that's something that's, to me personally, I'm really inspired by that. And so that's something that, like, yeah. you know, I want to do. And the crazy thing is I grew up in sports uh, and loving sports. And actually, um, the people that, like, I grew up watching and being inspired by were all Black athletes. You know, it's pretty cool, you know, and, and I have... If you looked at my wall growing up, it was just like all the, the NBA players and my, my every time I did any type of school report or anything, it was like MJ, MJ, MJ. It was an athlete. And so, um, but I think there's just a lot that we're trying to do in terms of building awareness of, amongst the Asian community and also having the Asian American community not only unify within ourselves, but also to, to, to unify and build solidarity uh, amongst uh, mainstream society as well. And, and I think there's just a lot that goes into it. But um, I agree with you in the sense that like, yeah, there isn't as much much exposure to it. Yeah. Talk a little bit about um, that meeting you had with your teammates and how, how did that conversation come forward? Like how, how was that broached? Uh, so to be honest, our coach, our head coach, Chris Williams, he did this really cool thing where maybe once or twice a week, he would just read these stats and he wasn't, you know, standing on his soapbox and giving some type of speech. It was just, hey, I'm going to read you guys some facts. And so he would read us facts from a calendar. Um, and so during February, it'd be like, February, on this day, this is what happened. Uh, and he would read stuff and it was like, so-and-so got lynched or so-and-so got raped. And it was just like a lot of these like very real stories. And he was just reading them and the descriptions and stuff like that. And then after he finished one of them, he also said, I just want to say too, in relation to a lot of these things, because uh, Coach Weems is African-American. And so he was talking a lot about social justice and that and reading a lot of these African-American stories and things that are real stories. And so and then he also mentioned that. And he was like, I did not know that happened, Jeremy, but we stand by you. And it was one of those things where only a few of my teammates had heard it. And then we didn't make it a big deal. It happened. In, it happened really fast. And so a lot of people didn't know about it. And then um, he kind of brought that up. And then that's kind of what spawned that and then a lot of my teammates came up to me after and started talking to me or asking me about it and stuff like that was that the first time that something like that has ever happened to you was like that that's your first experience with that uh no i mean if you're talking about like racist comments for sure not even close uh growing up it was you know you're a chinese import go back to china when i got to college it was you know chicken chow mein look at your eyes can you see the scoreboard wow. orchestra you're a chink 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 like and was this athlete saying this or just you talking about in school or was it like who was doing this was it just like schoolmates doing that uh it was you know it varied from people from school to opposing, you know, opponents. Oh, yeah. You know, the six-man club at away arenas to, you know, I've, I've had stuff happen on, in an NBA arena from fans and spectators. Um, you know, this is many years ago. But again, this is just something that I've always kind of seen and experienced growing up. Yeah. Talk a little bit about, you know, the Asian American experience is, is different, as you mentioned, from uh, the Black American experience, because there is no unified 
cultural voice. We're from Taiwan. We're from China. We're from Vietnam. We're from Cambodia. We're from the, I'm Filipino. When I uh, was growing up, nobody knew. I grew up in a white area. Nobody knew what that was. Like I didn't. I was Chinese to everyone. Like no, I was like no. I'm from the Philippines. Nobody had any understanding what that was. Um, as as you were coming into the uh, your awareness of just your own identity, what was that like growing up and trying to embrace or grapple with this Asian American identity? I mean, it's really hard and it's so evolving, right? And so like growing up, I, the area that I grew up in is primarily white. Um, but then I grew up in an immigrant, a Chinese immigrant church. And then I played basketball. And as I got into elite levels, AU levels, it was primarily African-American. And so I, I almost had these different sectors in my life. Like if it was school, it was white. If it was church, it was Asian. If it was, mm. if it was basketball, it was black, primarily, right? And then... Uh, and so for me, I was always kind of like trying to figure that out. And it's gotten even more complicated. Like, you know, when I grew up here during the sanity, playing basketball here, I'm always like the basketball player. But it's like, but he's Asian, but he's Asian. Yeah. And that was always a thing. And so I never felt like I really belonged here, especially on the floor. Right. Like on, on a basketball floor. Then I went overseas last year and played in China. And it's like, I'm I look like them. I speak the language, but I'm a foreigner. <laughs> And I'm under the foreigner rules and I'm treated as a foreigner and everything, you know, there's a huge delineation between the locals and the foreigners. And so now I'm kind of like, I don't really belong anywhere. And when you talk about these uh, not having a unified voice and you also talk about just being mashed into one group, it's so true. And this is a true story. One of my teammates, even just now in the G League bubble, as we're talking about it, he was just like, Hey man, like I mean, I, I I would love to learn more about Asian culture. Like, I mean, I even I even love sushi, and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> Jeremy, I know you lying, Jeremy. <laughs> Jeremy, I know you lying. Because <laughs> we were talking about Chinese food, and we were talking about the best Chinese food, and where the best Chinese food was, and so I think you know, and and I'm, I mean, Dang these it. are not oh, these are not God. to because it was so heartfelt, and you could see it in in my teammates' eyes and in his heart that, like, he wanted to know more and he wanted to relate and he was genuine and he had tremendous respect for me and he cared for me. I've had teammates in the past in the NBA who, again, the same thing, like, people who lived next to me, my neighbors who were teammates who were I was super close with, and then, he, you know, one of them came up to me and was like, I don't understand, Jeremy, how can you be Asian and Chinese? Like, that doesn't make sense. How can you be both? And I had to explain, mm-hmm. like, oh, well, this yeah. is how, you know. And he wasn't trying to make fun of me. He wasn't trying to anything. He was right. just like, man, I'm right. just trying to learn. You know, for a lot of my teammates, I'm the first Asian teammate that they've ever had. And even some of my teammates, yeah. the first Asian friend that they've ever had. And so I, I'm like, man, you know what? Like, if it wasn't for basketball, I wouldn't have met a whole bunch of different people from different cultures right. and learn. And I had to learn. And I had to ask these same types of questions for other people growing up. And so, I mean, that's the beauty of the game, right? It brings us together. It does. And so you mentioned it. So I have to ask about it. What was Linsanity like? Just to switch gears a little bit, because I mean, that was a phenomenon. Like, that's why they called it Linsanity. It was insane. You were in New York. Like, can you just talk about what was that like to just be propelled to superstar status instantly? I mean, it was it's it's kind of like the first thing that I always say that kind of catches people off guard was just like it was really, really scary. Like, really? it was really, really scary. I mean, I, I don't play for the fame and like, I don't, right. I, I struggle in the spotlight sometimes when, you know, even now when I get recognized sometimes, like, oh, this is Jeremy Lin or some people, like a few tables I walk in the restaurant, like, oh, this is Jeremy Lin. Like, I'll start sweating. Like, I'll start wow. actually sweating. And so 
I think for me, it was scary just how fast things change. I mean, I was on my brother and sister-in-law's couch and I had been there for four weeks and nobody cared. And I was walking in and out of the apartment <laughs> every day, being in the elevator with other people. I was taking taxis to MSG. At MSG, people were stopping me and being like, okay, this is only for players. And, you know, and I'm like, I'm, I'm a player. And they're like, no, you're not. And I'm like, no, they need <laughs> to do better. They got to do better. You know, and then a week or two later, it's like, I can't go anywhere. I can't go outside. There's paparazzi mm. camped outside my house. There's paparazzi camped outside my grandmother's house. I'm getting 200 text messages after every game. I'm in the taxi and now the taxi driver recognizes me and I'm on the screen, which I'm like, can we turn this TV off in the back of the, you know, the New York <laughs> taxi? I'm like, turn the TV off. I want to see myself. And it was just like everything flipped upside down and I was scared. And I think that's the biggest thing is like I was scared and it became like this ghost or this shadow or this like mm. phenomenon that I was trying to run away from. And as I have gotten older, I've come to really a- appreciate and embrace it. And now you see like, you know, back then it was like, no, 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 don't talk about me as an Asian. Like talk about my hoops, like talk about what yeah. I'm doing on the yeah. court. Don't just yeah. say, don't just say, oh, look, look, look what he's doing. He's Asian. Look what he's doing. I'm like, don't do that. You just wanted to be a baller. Yep. And now yeah. it's like the opposite. I'm like, oh, you want to go ahead. I'm Asian. You can keep talking about it. Oh, you don't want to talk yeah. about it as much anymore. Like, talk about it as much as you want now because I think as I've grown, I've come to appreciate it. I've come to understand the world a little bit more. I've understood how what some of the injustices are and I've evolved. And now it's not about me and my recognition as a basketball player. It's about the next generation. It's about the life that the people that came before me were trying to allow us to live and it's about making change. And so I think it is, uh, I mean, that's kind of my whole like thing with Lynn Sandy is it's, it's like continues to evolve depending on what season of life I'm at. Like I have a different yeah. perspective on it. It's so interesting. I was uh, full disclosure. I was in New York at that time. It, I was fully <laughs> caught up in it. It was a lot for me because I had your one-on-one duel with John Wall on DVR. Like, I was like, Jeremy Lin, I think he's going to be good. I was actually saying that to people. And so when it happened, it was like a lightning bolt because it's like, first of all, the Knicks are winning, <laughs> number one. Second of all, it's being spurred by this Asian-American guy. He looks like me. I never thought this would happen. And it, I became like so possessive of that experience in a way that I had never really experienced through sports before. And I'm sure a lot of people felt like that. You mentioned like this evolving seasons of your life. Like at what point did you start to feel comfortable with the idea that people would look at you and think, I'm inspired by this person. This person is, is representing me in a way that I feel proud of. Man, I would say maybe like six years after and I'm going to give this like really weird analogy, but like I've always resonated with anybody who has gotten fame at a young age or gotten fame overnight. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. there are people like uh, that I draw to in terms of like Bieber or Tebow or Johnny Manziel or like people who have kind of experienced something s- somewhat similar. But I've always said like the reason why Bieber's music resonates with me is because you kind of like the seasons that he went through is kind of what I went through. Like in the beginning, it's really cool when it first happens and then you get scared and then you go from scared to like angry and bitter because you're like, I can't believe people are trying to use me. I can't believe people are trying to take advantage of me. And then you go from like bitter and angry to jaded. And as you become jaded, you just run run away. You're rebelling and you're like, screw everything. And then after that, you kind of hit low points and you get humbled. And as you get humbled, you start to appreciate some of the things that you had before 
because they they look different now. And after you appreciate yeah. that and you go through that season, then you get to the the final season, which I think is just embracing it. And when you really get to that point where it's like, no, 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 I'm not jaded. I'm not bitter. I'm not angry. I'm embracing everything about it. Like to me, that was like a six year journey. And once I got past all of that, I was just like, oh, wow. Like I really did do things that have never been done on a basketball court on an NBA floor before. Oh, wow. I really did inspire people. But while it's happening and while you're like somewhat just a little bit removed from it, you're kind of like, dude, I don't want to be known for this. Like I'm more than that or like forget this or whatever. And so um, even now in the G League, like people were like opponents and stuff like we would play a game and then someone would ask me for a picture after. And so (laughs) I I grew up to do that insanity moment. Like I, I grew up watching that. That was incredible, you know, and it's like, oh, my goodness, like it really did touch people. And and I think that's that took me about six years to really get to that point. And so, um, you know, I, I, I'm there now. And that's why I'm like, you know, I, I love everything about it. And I'm open talking about it. No, that's beautiful. And so it's, it is inspiring to see the maturation process. And you created your own foundation. Mm. Now, can you just talk about that? Like what made you, because just hearing you talk, I'm glad you created your yeah. own foundation because <laughs> yeah. people people need to hear that because it's such a different perspective that, I mean, it's just not the norm experience. So what made you create your foundation and, and, and tell us about it? The one incident that made me promise to myself that I would work with underprivileged children uh, when, if I ever got the chance, when I was in middle school, I went to go pick up one of my AU teammates, one of my best friends. And he, I lived in Palo Alto. He lived in East Palo Alto. It's just across the highway. You literally just jump over the highway. When I was growing up, East Palo Alto had the highest crime per capita of any city in the U S. And so we were coming, we we're about to play a big game. I picked up my, my, my teammate and he's African-American. And I was like, Hey man, you ready? It's a big game. How'd you sleep? He's like, I didn't sleep that well. And I was like, why? He's like, Oh, there's gunshots. Like, uh, in the middle of the night and and I, I got really scared and and we and I started asking questions and that's when I realized man I'm right here you literally just jump over the little juncture the, the highway interstate and, and you go over to the other side and it's completely different and that's when I said from now on like if I ever get the chance I'm going to be doing some type of work there and I ended up living in East Palo Alto for three weeks in high school and working with one of the apartment complexes and the things wow. I saw I mean you saw like fifth graders who had to sell sell drugs just to make money. You saw, uh, you know, gang violence. You saw some of the kids in our little camp that we were working at. They were getting chased down by other gang members with bats trying to, you know, and, and it's in the middle of our programs. And like, I mean, the stuff I saw was just amazing, like in the sense that it was just like, I couldn't believe it. And it was happening so close to where I grew up. And so I started my foundation my, my rookie year. And now uh, this past year, we... We uh, partnered with five AAPI organizations that are serving underprivileged youth in the Bay Area. And it's just near and dear to my heart. And again, going back to like social justice and Asian American issues, you know, Asian Americans struggle a lot with income equality in the sense that a lot of people know that like certain Asians, you know, families are well off, but people don't know about there are so many Asian families that are struggling and and one in four you know, are underprivileged and 12% in California are, are in poverty and there's huge income inequality. And now you add in COVID. And, and so these organizations are doing everything. Like they're, some of them are just chasing down these children that they can't even hear from anymore. They're like, where are they? We haven't heard from them. Where are they? And some of them are providing meals. Some of them are trying to find ways to continue their education. Otherwise they're going to fall further and further behind with COVID. 
and, and being isolated, not being able to go to school. And, and then, you know, some of them are about just getting meals or, you know, youth empowerment, anti-bullying, mental health, leadership development, like across the board, a wide ranging spectrum of things that uh, are serving AAPI youth in the Bay Area. And so um, that's what we've been focused on this year. And the thing about COVID across the board is it's just made the gap even wider. And yeah, yeah. If, and this is not just within Asian Americans, just it's made the gap wider, period. And if we're not cognizant of that, there are some serious long-term effects that will happen if, we're, if we as a society don't rally together to try to help. Last week, some comments about baseball star Shohei Otani, who's just my idol right now, caused a controversy while on first take. Stephen A. Smith made the claim that the Japanese-born pitcher and hitter's use of interpreter hurts his ability to connect, to capture an American audience. Uh, We should note that he has since apologized for these comments and that he was referring to the markability and promotion of the sport. But let's also note that according to Forbes, Otani is, despite Stephen A's comments, one of baseball's most marketable stars. He uh, has $6 million in endorsements here stateside, $10 million uh, in Japan and internationally. That is more than Bryce Harper or Chris Bryant. Uh, Renee, what do you make of the idea that international players playing in America are not marketable? If they can't speak English, I think that that's very old school. I I feel like, you know, we think of traditional marketing and I think that's probably what Stephen A was referring to in a sense of, Mm -hmm. you know, traditional marketing is I have a product. I hold it here and I say, try Bolt 24. I love the product. It's great for me. And that's, yeah. And then that's how you get the check and that's how you continue to, to sell a product. But as we see with this digital age, there's so much you can do now. You know, you could do a uh, illustration or an animation of, of, of Tani now endorsing a product. You know, like you could have captions on a text of, yeah. of him. Promo- like there's so many different ways now to get around a language barrier on the, in this digital age with just the creativity that we do with digital marketing that I just think that that's old school to think that you have to be able to articulate verbally that you endorse a product, you know, like I think that that's old school. And I think Stephen A realized that very quickly when he made yes, the statement for for people that don't know, he said, when you talk about an audience gravitating to the tube or to the ballpark, I don't think it helps that the number one face is a dude that needs an interpreter. Now, <laughs> I, you know, I, I like I said, a few hours later, too, he tried to yeah. clarify his comments saying he was just talking about the marketability and promotion of the sport. We later know he came out with a full-blown apology online, another apology on first take. But I think that, you know, journalists have to really adjust with the times. The times are changing and and the way things are done, process are changing and the journalists got to keep up. What are what are your thoughts? I think that on for one I'm glad Stephen made the apology and I'm glad that he clarified that he was talking about markability and the promotion of the sport. I also think that these kind of conversations about notable people, celebs or anyone uh, speaking English, doing things to uh, to more, you know, smoothly and efficiently uh, appear to be part of mainstream society are often like code for something else. I I guess like the thing that I thought about was like 
Why does anybody care what Shohei Otani's marketing, you know, income is, or or if they are, if if this guy is hitting the ball like a like a colossus, which he is, if he's doing the things that he's doing on the on the field, it's unclear to me why exactly that matters, except that Stephen A. and other people who might complain about this are maybe not so concerned with the health of and marketability and uh, visibility of America's pastime and are more just kind of annoyed that they can't directly ask Shohei Otani a, a question or have to go through somebody or just annoyed in general that someone is here and not speaking English and succeeding. Like it's, I, I always... I remember the first time my my parents were like, uh, oh, yeah, we were when they were growing up in the Philippines, they're like, yeah, we loved the Beatles. And I was like, wow, that's so crazy that you grew up in another country and you're you the music that you were listening to was English music. And it's the same thing now. Like you you watch television from Europe or from anywhere and um, you will see American hip hop. Uh, American music. You'll see American stars selling stuff, and I think we've, I, I think we've just become so used to um, being the pop culture center of the entire globe. Our stars are the world's stars. Our music is the world's music. Everybody watches our movies. That I think that it's jarring now when somebody comes from outside that and is not like trying to integrate in the way that we expect because we just expect like oh our culture goes all around the world and why wouldn't you learn english why wouldn't yeah. why wouldn't you do that stuff it's it's just to get very um american centric perspective that I understand why Stephen feels that way because it's, you know, that's the way the world has been for several decades, but it's just, it's not the way the world is now to your point. What do you think? Yeah. And you know, I think, I think too, we know that certain things transcend cultures. So music, you talked about it. You can hear a song. I can hear a song from BTS and I can yeah. like think it's lit no matter if you know what they're saying or if you don't. And it's the same for our hip hop culture in other countries. Mm-hmm. They might they might know a whole rap song and not know any English. I've had teammates. So I played overseas for 10 years. I've had teammates in the locker room. They can rap bar for bar with me on Jay-Z lyrics, anything. But then afterwards, you know, their English might be a little broken. But, you know, that experience going overseas for me, it was so vital because there's obviously this stereotype that Americans are arrogant and different mm-hmm. things of that nature. And there's we are spoiled to a certain extent. We are and spoiled, Stephen A. For sure. Yeah. Stephen A is talking about that spoiled American sense that, wait, you're not Americanizing yourself to fit into our culture to make sure that we can digest you easier. No, that's not his that's not his problem. You know, like Otani doesn't need to make sure that we can under like that we are easily digesting what he has to do. He's going out there and he's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. He's being baseball's most marketable star. Yeah. He's knocking balls out the park left and right. He's a generational talent and we're just not used to that. We're used to if we want you, you better give us what we want and how we want it. And that's not happening anymore. We see different stars. Even with Naomi Osaka, I watched her yes. documentary. Yes. And she talked about there was this, this uncomfortableness 
that when people found out she's playing for the Japanese national team and she was like, it was never, I was never <laughs> yeah, deciding was never. between America and <laughs> yeah. Japan. I was always playing for them, but we were all like, she said, basically the media was like, oh, yeah. you're playing for Japan. And she's like, I've played for them always, you know, like, and if you watch the documentary, it's true. She has, but as Americans, again, we're like, if you had the choice, why wouldn't you pick us? And it's like, we maybe aren't the center point of everyone's life. Like we thought we were. And maybe we were, but yes. it's changing. Things I, are changing. That's all I'll say. Things I, I are think changing. about the uh, the Dream Team documentary and all the famous clips that we remember of Jordan walking down the Champs Elysees or uh, uh, or Barkley and Magic walking around Barcelona and getting mobbed by international fans. That's what we think is normal, right? We think that's normal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Could Michael Jordan speak French? Uh, could Charles Barkley speak Spanish? No. <laughs> right? Or Catalonian or any, or no. any of those languages? No. But we are just like, yeah, that's that's the way it should be. We export our stars yeah. and everybody accepts it and they love it and that's great. But if you send your stars here, they better learn to speak English or else there's going to be a problem. And that's, to your point, it's just not the way the world works anymore. And we are now getting a very, very small taste of what the rest of the world has has been experiencing yeah. with the exporting of America's stars to different markets. It's just really interesting. And of course, you know, uh, Spanish speaking uh, players are a are a huge part of the MLB. This this uh, the comments, Stephen A's comments, um, while directed at Shohei and or about um, Shohei, um, clearly pertain to the uh, 25% of opening day rosters in 2019 that uh, speak uh, Spanish as their first language. Uh, it, it's, it's just an old, old minded thinking. It's not the way uh, media works anymore and the, not the way fame works anymore and not the way sports works anymore. And you know what? I hope that this starts to shift another culture that, you know, like, again, traveling a lot for basketball, I got submerged into so many different cultures. No matter where I went, almost every single person spoke some English. Like I could be in the grocery store and I would be like, cow, yeah, yeah, yeah. moo. And then they were like, oh, yeah, yeah. OK. And they would tell me where the beef is in the, in the grocery store. But like everywhere else in the world makes an make effort. Like just at least, just at least a little effort everywhere else in the world makes an effort to learn English baseline, broken English, a certain amount. But Americans, there's a lot of us that we don't know, <laughs> like not even like, hola, como esta? Like we don't know. You know what I mean? Like we can't count to 10. Yes. We can't do a lot. And I think that says a lot the, about the rise of. It's only really been in the last several years with the rise of popularity of of reggaeton and and uh, Bad Bunny blowing reggaeton, baby! Bad Bunny blowing up like going to multiple parties and or bars and or places where Bad Bunny is playing. And I know for a fact that many of the people there cannot speak Spanish or understand what uh, what Mr. Yeah. Bunny is saying. But that's the only the, Mr. Mr. Bunny, Bunny. It's only the these last several years where I've really felt like, oh, there is a shift, um, at least to acknowledge the the, the large population uh, of the American citizenry um, that also speaks Spanish. Um, but we're slowly getting there. We're so have you ever felt when you were playing overseas, did you ever feel like a pressure to like learn Russian, learn uh, anything like that? 
Uh, da. Yeah, I, I did. That's that's yes in Russian, but I didn't feel a pressure to. I put pressure on myself. Like I wanted to know. Like I'm the type, and especially too, it's difficult because being a point guard overseas where your whole job is to communicate and communicate yeah. the plays, communicate what's going on in the game. If I don't know a certain thing, like, you know, like I had to learn to say like, divide, yeah, like, let's go. Like I had to be able to talk to them in their language for certain sports terms because I need to be able to do that on the fly. I don't need them to have to be thinking on the fly like, oh, how do I translate that or what does she mean? So I took it upon myself to learn some things. Um, as a lot of people know, my fiance, mm -hmm. you know, Dominican, she's she's from the Dominican Republic where her, her parent, her mom is, but she was born in New York. But so that's a bilingual family. Like they speak straight up Spanish only in the house a lot of times. So I just, I value multiple languages just because if you've traveled if you've been yes. around the world you start to see how small we are as americans in the sense of there's other cultures other worlds out there and and americans we're kind of like yeah yeah we know it's out there but <laughs> it's america's where it's at baby like we really have that feeling like yeah yeah yeah, y'all do y'all's thing but when you come here we're americans and it's like i you know just i'm blessed to have been cultured at a young age to know that we should be learning like everyone in America should have a baseline of Spanish. Like, I, I think that that's something that we should have. But, you know, now we're starting to sh see that shift. It's going to happen. We're going to see it more and more. And, you know, like for me, it, like when it comes to, to media, we weren't doing interviews all the time. Like, you know, here for the NBA, it's not necessarily right after every game that we're doing interviews and different things of that nature. But they they did make an effort to make sure that when I did do media, I was comfortable. I had an interpreter and the interpreter was working both ways. Um, a lot of times, too, the actual interviewer would talk to me in English. So, you know, it might be broken English. It might, you know, but I could still understand enough to answer it. So, again, making the effort to try to talk to me in English because they knew that was my first language. I think that that goes like that says a yeah. lot about them because I'm talking to uh, audience that doesn't speak English. Their first language is Russian, but even still, they're talking to me in English. And that just shows how other countries are more apt to cater to maybe a different culture. And again, I know America is that culture that the world kind of understands, watches, whether it's our athletics, our culture, our music. We know that transcends all other countries, but that still doesn't necessarily give us a pass to not try to you know, cater or be understanding to other cultures. I think that's where we kind of drop the ball as Americans. We're spoiled. That's it. He's the head coach of the 11-time national champion, UConn Huskies women's basketball team. He's led the U.S. women's national basketball team to two gold medals at the Olympics. And that's literally just two of the things on his long list of accomplishments. But the most important thing is that he is my coach forever, Coach Ariyama. You know, I love you. The godfather. Welcome to Take Line. And Coach... Now, this year, we know we had another great season, got bumped out of the Final Four by Arizona and current dream rookie that we drafted, Ari McDonald. But how does the blue look for next season? What are you expecting from your star page? We know she had surgery. So, you know, how's she coming along and what are you expecting next year? Uh, well, I'm expecting them to grow up a little bit 
and uh, not be so <laughs> not be so immature. Uh, you know, we played Baylor last year, right, in the final eight game. So that game took a lot out of us. It was a physical game. You know, it was a tough game. And after we won that game, some of the younger guys, and maybe it's some of the older guys too, you know, we just have it. You know, you have to have a mature team to win a national championship. I think they went into the Arizona game and we spent, people probably won't believe this. We spent more time preparing for the Arizona game than we did for the Baylor game. Really? How so? Well, just more things to go over, more things. You know, we have, we knew Baylor's personnel. We had played them. We, we didn't know Arizona that right. well, right? Right. So we wanted – and smart me, right? Yeah. I tried to like, okay, here's the advantages that we have over Arizona. Let's try to take advantage of those. Here's the matchup, you know, uh, situations that favor us. Let's try to take advantage of it. The only problem is the matchups that favor us wasn't exactly our strengths. Oh, uh, yeah. So yeah. I kind of – you know, so they went in. So after we lose the game, you know, their media, well, you know, we didn't know that it was going to be this hard. You know, we didn't think it was going to be. And I'm like, how the hell do you Yikes. think that the final, the semifinal game for the national championship ain't going to be hard? Right. What? Who the hell are you guys talking to? <laughs> so They see that thousand win jersey behind oh, you. Right. And, and, they, and they think that that's yeah. going to be now, You know what some of these guys are today in college? They're like this. They go, uh, coach, uh, you came to Connecticut, you won 11 national championships. Yep. And, you know, we have this many All-Americans. Uh, you know, coach, um, I, I, uh, I want to make, you know, make me an All-American. And I'll be like, yeah, you know, like, uh, what am I, like Subway? Where you go, hey, make me a sandwich. Have it your way, Burger King, baby. Yeah. You go, like, yo, make me a sandwich. Sure, I make you a sandwich, make you an All-American. What are you shitting me? How am I going to do that? How am I going to do that? All I can do is give you the platform oh. to become one Yeah. and push you and push you and push you. The rest is up to you, dude. So I said, I've never been asked that question before. That's crazy. I said ever in my life by anybody who's made all American on our team. I've yeah. never been asked that. I definitely didn't ask you that. No, hell no. So the 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 thing is, you know, a, a maturity level that you have to reach that I think kids coming out today think maybe it's a little bit easier than it's yeah. going to be. You know, they don't realize how hard it's going to be. So what has to change this year? Uh, well, obviously we need more help for Paige. You know, she she makes shots, she scores, and Kristen had a great NCAA tournament, Kristen Williams. So I think she's she's building on that right now, based on what I see during these summer school workouts. Uh, Liv really struggled, and she's you know working harder than she's ever worked. Uh, we've brought in a couple new kids, uh, both new freshmen, and we have a kid transferred in from Ohio State. Oh, yeah, I saw that. So we definitely have way more pieces of the puzzle this year. We have a little more experience. We have everybody back that, you know, uh, very few teams can say that. So I, I like I like our chances okay. this year and uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, 
You mentioned, uh, Paige, you've coached so many great players uh, over the course of your career. How do you fit Paige into into that? Uh, you know, I, I was just thinking, looking at, you know, whether it's Rebecca Lobo, uh, Diana Taurasi, Maya Moore, um, and now Paige, there's a, there's a, you can kind of trace the evolution of the game. Um, how do you, how do you fit Paige into, into that kind of like lineage of player? Um, I think talent wise, skill wise, God given talent, you know, I, I think, uh, I've had certainly a bunch of players that have come with that, you know, um, uh, somebody like Stewie comes to mind, you know, where you, you just need to like harden her and she's got things that you can't, you can't draw up. You can't teach. You can't coach. I mean, you know, you're six, four and you got a seven foot one wingspan. <laughs> and when you go shoot a jump shot, you jump, you know, this high off the, off the floor. So there ain't a guy in men's basketball that would have an easy time blocking that shot. And, it, it, she needed hardening. Okay. Uh, somebody like Diana come here. She don't need hardening. She came <laughs> here hard. Yeah. You know, she needs to be like reined in a little bit, like, come on. All right. You know, do it, do it, you know, pick your spots. You know, somebody like Maya comes, you know, Maya goes boom, 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 boom. Every day, every day, every day, every day. You know, Maya needed to learn perspective. Like, how do I play with four other great players on the floor at the same time? You know, um, you know, and Renee, you know, because she's sitting right here, you know, <laughs> was vocal, demonstrative, uh, confident, cocky, walking around like, you know, I got this, you know, and and projected an air of of confidence that the rest of the team went, hell yeah, you know, we're, that's who we are. We're her. And Paige, Paige is quiet. Oh, wow. She doesn't say much. She's uh, quiet in her game. Like all of a sudden you look up at the end of the game, she had 27 and, you know, 12 assists. And you go, man, how, how the hell does she do that? It just, you know, she'll go a spurt where she'll be like unbelievable and then the rest of the time she's quiet. Um, so her evolution has to be, she's got to get harder every day in practice and realize that the game is going to be real physical against her. And I asked her a really good question this past uh, summer, three weeks ago. I said, if you were guarding you, I said, how would you guard yourself? What'd she say? She said, well, I wouldn't let me, I wouldn't let me shoot a three. I said, okay. So next time we're working on getting open to shoot a three, don't half-ass it because that's going to be the key. What else? She said, I would be really physical with me. I said, right. So now when we're in the weight room and we're doing stuff, you need to know, I got to do this. You know, what else? Um, I said, well, they'd force you left. I can go left. I said, well, <laughs> I said, I can go left too, but that don't mean I want to score going left. You know? So, you know, uh, and I said, and and you know, these things you, you come with maturity and come with growth, but there's things that she sees and things that plays that she makes yeah. 
that are just, you know. Incredible. They're, they're God-given. They're God-given. Yeah, I called the games, as you know. I called a few of the UConn NCAA yeah. games this year. And the maturity level, and, and I look at it, and you see all these new faces, and I always wonder, like, what's the difference in the recruiting process versus when I was there? Because players are so different now. Just even as I'm watching players, you know, like, when we were there, we didn't have nails and eyelashes. You know, we didn't really – but this is a different type of player now that I see in the tournament, and it's an evolution. So what's, like, the been the biggest difference for you just recruiting this new age of players as opposed to before? And excluding it, the pandemic, of course, because that yeah, was unique. Yeah, it, it is crazy. You know, like I'll say something <laughs> like I'll say something like. What's with those nails? <laughs> and and they'll be like, what? I go, who who colors their nails? <laughs> I said, where, where are you going to the prom? I oh said, where are you going here? You going out on a date? Where are you going? I said, you're coming here to play basketball. Like, so what are you going to do with the game on the line? You know, as a jump ball, you go, Ooh, don't break my nail. You know, like, Ooh, look, how nice that is. Like, what are we doing here? I said, there's a time and place for everything. But today's kids, it's like, yeah, like that's my, that's my, that's my jam, man. Like that's my, that's my, that's my, that's, my, that's what I do. You know, see, that's what, you know, and, and the eyelash thing, you know, like, so I'm like, yo, you're either real basketball players or you're like, <laughs> I said, you know, it's it, it's 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 a statement by you that says, hey, this this is serious. I'm two different people. When I come play basketball, I come ready for work. And when I go out, I go out. Those are two different people. <laughs> oh my right? Yeah. So trying to explain that is is a little bit of a uh a challenge. And then the idea that, you know. Uh, I came here because I want what you have, coach. But can I do it the way I want to do it? I said, well, those two things don't go together. Right. Mm. Like, if you already know how to do it, I would ask you how to do it. But you don't. So you're <laughs> you're depending on me to show you how to do it. So when I go, do it. it's like it's like if I come to Atlanta and I say, hey, Renee, how do I get to the uh, Georgia Dome? Yeah. And you go, well, you go down here, you make a right third left you make a and I go uh you know what I'd rather go a different way then why the hell did you ask me right <laughs> <laughs> then go ahead get lost and tumble around and find your own way and then but come back because, and ask me but, again but because they got GPS see they think everything's yeah you know that, that, that you don't have to put a lot of you don't of, of yourself you don't have to invest a lot of yourself yeah you know you just kind of like go I got it well, if it was that easy, everybody else would have 11 national championships. Bloop. Okay. Uh, responding to recent uh, court decisions, the NCAA Board of Directors has yeah. uh, changed the rules, declared that athletes can make money off their image and likeness. Have you begun yeah. to think about like how your program is going to grapple with these changes or what the effects might be? Yeah, I'm... I'm I'm anxious, I'm anxious to see what the effects are. I'm anxious to see how, what the effects are. So let's say, you know, let's say your your page, who, you know, was she was famous coming out of high school. You know, I called her Paige Kardashian. 
<laughs> I said, you know, damn, man. I said, you're oh, famous. Wow. You're famous for being famous. I said, you haven't done a damn thing. And everybody's talking about you like you're the greatest thing ever. She goes, you know, to her credit, she goes, coach, I don't get it either. I said, I'm just telling, you know, that's just the world that we live in. That's your world. So now she's going to be able to capitalize on that. And AZ's a big name in recruiting. So she comes here. So now she's going to be able to capitalize on that. How much? Who knows? So in the future now, you know, you've got three or four or five, you know, high school, potential college All-Americans. And how's that affect the team when some are getting great opportunities and some are not? Some getting opportunities. Yeah, that's... Some are like a little bit of interest, some mm-hmm. a lot of interest. Like I use this analogy. I said, listen, if LeBron and Anthony Davis are getting X, everybody else on the Lakers knows I'm getting something other than X, like way, way other than X. Yeah. Okay. And they're cool with that. They're, they're, they're men and they understand this is a job and it's a business, you know, guys that work for Apple or Google or whatever, they know there are certain guys at certain levels of that company that get X. You, wherever you are, you get Y. Now, does an 18 year old understand that? Does a 19 year old understand that? I don't know. I don't know. So I think these kids may be under the impression that the minute this law was passed, here come the checks. Like everybody. Like everybody's <laughs> getting paid. And the truth of the matter is going to be very few of them are going to get paid. And they're going to have to actually do something to get paid. Mm. Whatever that is. Yeah. You know, so it's not going to be just because you're a nice kid and, you know, UConn's number one in the country. Yeah. So it's interesting because, like, you know, at UConn, we fly charter. You know, we, you know, my first time eating at Del Fresco's was with you guys and CD's <laughs> teaching us which forks and everything to use. And so I think that there's this interesting dynamic coming, maybe not with men's basketball or football, but in a lot of the women's sports, do you think that they'll get to a point where college athletes could possibly make more than the pros? In women's basketball, I can see that happening. I can see that happening. Like, what do you think that would, like, how, like, how will that, that, (laughs) you you know what I'm saying? Like, would that not be, like, what will that look like if now college athletes could possibly be making more and then when they graduate and go pro, they're making less? That's. Yeah. It it depends. It, It may depend on where you go to school, let's say. So let's say you're at UConn, because that's what we're talking about. And now we have this huge UConn nation that follows UConn women's basketball. And it's actually national, okay, around the country. We've become like Duke men's basketball. (laughs) Which side are you on? You either hate us or you love us. Facts, facts. Okay? You hate us or you love us. There's nobody that has no opinion. Right. You know, you can say to somebody, hey, what do you think of, uh, you know, Kentucky women's basketball. They might go, I don't know. But you say, well, what do you think of UConn women's basketball? Oh, man, I love them. I love their coach. I love yeah. Next person. I hate them. Whenever they're on TV, <laughs> I root for anybody but them. Okay. But everybody's got an opinion. Yeah. So if you play here, you are inundated with media attention. Yeah. Social media attention. 
Now, you grow that over four years. See, that's the key. It grows over four years, sure. provided you're really good. Now you leave and you go to the WNBA. Will that stay with you? Hopefully. Or will some of that, you know, will the, where will you go? Let's say you go play for the Atlanta Dream. Mm-hmm. Do they have a big enough platform that you can use to enhance everything you already have? Mm-hmm. I don't know. All that remains to be seen. No question about it. That's crazy. That's just blowing my mind. It's crazy, right? <laughs> it's blowing yeah. my mind because wow. a player, um, a, a football player just signed a $20,000 deal, you know? So the first day out, the gates. So it's like, wow, if that continues, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and when they get when when they get to uh, when they get to to the NBA or the NFL or wherever they're going, um, what's going to be the determining factor? Well, I would like to think in sports how good you are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's an- doing TikTok videos when you're in the NBA. <laughs> that ain't gonna, that ain't going to get it right. Oh, I might though. That's big money now, coach. I'm yeah. just well, saying. It's it's big money if you're a 13 year old. <laughs> if you're a 14 year old and you're oh, TikToking your butt off, you know, <laughs> you can make some money. I don't know oh, if they want a bunch gosh. of 20 year olds TikToking. Oh, you might be too. That may be way. That's too old. That's way too old for that crowd. Last week, after Simone Biles withdrew from several Olympic events, the sports media, various people on social media uh, all had an opinion and descended into a chaotic conversation about uh, Ms. Biles' legacy in sport. There were some, I think, pretty unfair comparisons across the board to uh, Michael Jordan, to other athletes, as well as some discussions about athletes. Um, mental health within the context of other um, athlete-driven mental health conversations that have taken place recently. Uh, we should note that it was announced um, just today that uh, Simone will compete in the balance beam final on Tuesday. Uh, but I think one of the problems we saw last week was how the discussions around Simone uh, were framed. Renee, I have some thoughts on how we need to change the narrative around these types of stories um, so they don't just become basic sports discussions. Uh, and I'm sure you do as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with Simone Biles' case, it was very interesting because the story, it was a slow roll, right? It was the first, she's opting out, and no one had an understanding of why. So we got to see everyone's unfiltered thoughts. We got to see, oh no, is this another Naomi Osaka situation? What's going on? We're getting tired of this. Athletes aren't like they used to be. Whatever happened to the mama mentality? We started to see all this kind of of language when before we knew about the twisties like and and, and in full disclosure i didn't know anything about the twisties until i found out about the twisties from simone biles but the real problem and i think it's kind of hitting on what you're saying is how we address situations going on with athletes that we've maybe never seen before how do we address situations going on with athletes that maybe we just don't even know because the everyday casual fan they have no idea about a lot of things like Okay, we didn't know the twisties, but a lot of casual fans don't necessarily know somebody has a bone bruise. What's the timeline or what can a person fight through? What's the norm? They're just not in the locker rooms. They don't see it all the time. So how we address athletes 
And maybe the things that we don't know or understand going on with those athletes, I think that's the real thing that that that's happening now. Even with the Naomi Osaka, when she says mental health, people are like, well, what actually is going on in your life that makes you not be able to perform? And it's like, none of your business, but it's my mental health. Like, People are having a hard time with the not knowing and with the, okay, well, if this athlete is just going to do their own thing, then like fans are almost getting mad. Like, well, then I don't have to watch her. I don't have to be a fan if they don't want to compete. And it's like, no, they're taking care of themselves, first of all. But this is this is just a new world, basically, that we're in. And I don't know if the media nor fans know how to handle it, Jason. Yeah, I think even within the kind of like broader conversation that has just come to the forefront of of kind of like sports media discourse recently about athlete mental health even within even in the context of that conversation i think i think simone biles uh the conversation about her is is different because the thing the thing that got to me was when people were like oh um michael jordan michael jordan never quit for his mental health which you know uh, he quit the sport for two whole years to go play baseball because he was traumatized after the murder of his father. When you point this out to people, they then say, oh, but he didn't do it in the middle of a game. He didn't do it in the middle of game six against the Suns. Uh, he was under contract though, right? I mean, so what really gets me about that is what a tremendous like disservice it does to the things she's been through. As many will know, uh, Simone and over a hundred uh, young women were uh, sexually abused by Larry Nasser, the team doctor. Um, all of this was covered up by the USOPC, the USAG for years. It was brought to the forefront. People were informed about it. They didn't kick it up to the authorities. It wasn't until uh, an athlete actually pressed charges uh, that uh, that Nasser's downfall was triggered. But this, the, these allegations were buried by the people uh, that were supposed to protect all these athletes. While that was going on, she won, uh, you know, like 19 world medals, uh, six Olympic medals, including four gold medals. Um, And in that context, like to put that ordeal in the context of an athlete, like overcoming an obstacle is actually like, that's gross. You know what I mean? Like to put that in the context, to put that in the context of Michael Jordan having the flu uh, is just so fucked up. And I think the thing that really frustrated me the most was, uh, number one, like, of course, if she could have, if she quit at any point in the past, forget now, forget, uh, you know, during the Olympics, she owed nobody anything after what she's been through. Um, But the fact that during this whole time where she's like 16, 17, 18 years old, and there is no like uh, players union for, for gymnasts, you know what I mean? There's no protection. All the people that were supposed to protect her were actively covering this up during that time. The thing that all those women were told was like, we don't believe you. And so therefore we're going to move on from this. And now when Simone says like, I can't go, the reaction of so many talking heads, sports fans, et cetera, is like, we don't believe you. What's the reason? We don't believe like someone came at me and was like, yeah, but, but like, this is the Olympics. This is in the middle of the competition. And so I'm like, yeah, she must have a good reason then. Right. Right. Like, 
Like, why don't we trust that she has a very good reason? Forget the twisties. Like, anything else that she's been through is a good enough reason to be like, I don't want to do this anymore. Because the USOPC, the USAG, these are not like new, different organizations now that the Nasser thing happened. Like, all that stuff is still ongoing. A lot of those testimonies are still under seal. They didn't just like rip up the entire organization and be like, okay, here's a fresh start. You guys will compete uh, under this whole new organization. She's working for the same organization that covered all this stuff up. And she did it, and she'd been, uh, she's been straightforward about this. She competed this year because she felt like there needed to be a survivor on the team so they couldn't cover this up. They couldn't actively cover up what happened, couldn't just move on from it. In the light of all that, like, you can't talk about this like it's Michael Jordan Game 7 or any other athlete winning a Super Bowl or something. It's just completely different. Um, and it just is so frustrating. And, you know, and like, I don't actually, I actually don't blame a lot of the people like on social media who are like, who don't know how to talk about this because this requires a whole new language to talk about. This is entirely like for most people, sports is entertainment. They work an eight, nine, 10, 12 hour shift delivering packages or whatever. And they come home and they just want to watch the Olympics and not think about stuff where this particular uh, story and many others, but this one in particular requires people like you got to do the work. You have to know about this other stuff in order to be able to talk about this in a way that does it justice. And I understand that people aren't ready to do that. Uh, and so it's just been so frustrating to watch this happen. You know, a lot of times, Jason, it seems like people, whenever they see a situation going on with an athlete or said athlete, you can replace Simone Biles with any athlete, LeBron James, any athlete. If that athlete is going through something, people tend to, and it's not not for a fault, it's just natural. Like people tend to compare their own situation to what's going on with that athlete. So somebody might see what a very rich athlete is going through and be like, oh, well, I mean, I have to work 12 hour shifts while raising four kids and I wish I was doing that. I wish I could be doing that right now. Yeah. yeah, and we have to stop doing that. We have to stop looking at other people's situations through our lens. Like, if we always look at everyone's situation through our own lens, of course, we're all going to be like, oh, yeah, give me this or let this happen to me or not. And I'm not talking about the abuse. I'm just talking about in general when we start yeah. to talk about mental health when it comes to athletes. A lot of times it almost gets brushed away because— People look at their circumstances in their everyday lives and be like, well, at least they have this. But when you look at what's going on with Simone Biles, the pressure that the world has, I mean, I I said Twitter gave her her own emoji. Why? Because she was the most talked about athlete going into the Olympics. So you have to add in on that worldwide USA pressure is there. She's the most talked about athlete. It's a fact. Twitter already put it out. So then you add on top of that, that it's a known thing, Jason, you said it. We're here. I'm here because I want to make sure that there's a survivor, that somebody has to be held accountable. A lot of people may not know, because like you said, to do the work, they turned down like a 200 million something dollar settlement because they wanted to understand. They wanted people they to understand. They wanted to come out. Yes, yep. they wanted the details to come out. Look, Ali Reisman, this past weekend, I was on um, Bob Costas' new show, Back on the Record. Ali Reisman was also on that show, and she spoke about it. She said, we turned down that money Because we want to know who knew what and when did they know it. The gymnasts want answers. And so, and and even listening to her speak, she talked about when she talks about what happened with them for sometimes days or even weeks, she's almost just like un- 
manageable in a sense of she can't, it's hard for her to deal with to talk about that. So just hearing Allie talk about, it's hard for her to even function in everyday life when she talks about this situation. Think about what Simone Bowles is dealing with, again, being the most talked about Olympian, also dealing with the twisties. And this is something that people need to just think of this as like a physical injury in sports. If, If you can't comprehend why she can't compete just think of it as a torn acl or or a pulled right. something like you just have to get your mind to shift to this is a physical problem even though you know she could come back from it it's physical in a sense of she could really hurt herself and it's not okay i mean she even made the statement yes. simone made the statement if you look at the pictures in my eyes you can see how confused i am as to where i am in the air so we already are dealing with the trauma of what's happened in the past. You're dealing with the pressure of being the most talked about Olympian, like period. And then yeah. you're dealing with an injury to yourself. That's a lot. And people don't know how to process that other than saying, God, oh, she can fight through it or because that's our only, you know, like that's that takes psychology that takes other things that takes work as you put it, Jason. And, and it's not for no fault of anyone else. We've never given athletes any time. We've never given athletes effort. It's always been, are you healthy? Okay, play. Are yeah. you not healthy? Okay, you don't play. We never asked, are you mentally healthy? Are you physically healthy? It's, are you healthy? Go play. And so I just think we're just seeing a shift in the tides. I mean, if you just look at it, I ho- I, I'm, it's, I have to just say, it's so impressive for all of those women. We talked about it. It was over 100 women to turn down $200 million, even if you had to split it between the 100-plus mm-hmm. women, that's a lot of money. But to know that this could continue, that they're still working for the same organization, the same people, that they might not have enabled it, but you knew about it and you didn't stop it. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just such a messy situation. USA Gymnastics, after this Olympics, I mean, honestly, I, it should have been before this Olympics because we were talking about they wanted to sweep it under the rug for the 2016 Olympics. And here we are yep. at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics that's really happening in 2021, which is a whole nother year and it's still not being resolved. So everyone needs to keep being loud about USA Gymnastics. We need to keep praising the women for their bravery, but we need to, like, we need to, as a general population, not let this go until they clean house. They got to clean it up over there. That's disgusting. They got to completely tear it up. Um, it, it is absolutely insane. And then think about, you know, a, a lot of these women have talked about that the Olympics is for them, not necessarily a time of celebration. It's when all those memories and all those things are brought back up. So uh, they're dealing with a pressure that no one can understand and that no one can really uh, possibly try and uh, try and put themselves in the middle of uh, unless they've been through something similar to that. And everything that they have done uh, to this point makes them really beyond any kind of like sports criticism. Like uh, that's it's just insane to me to be like, oh, you uh, how could you do this? She's. Forget, like, she's already won 25 medals, worlds plus Olympics. Like, like who does that? W- that yeah, like, <laughs> w- what more does she need to do? And even if she hadn't won those, right? Even the girls who didn't compete. They, beyond criticism, to be like, they don't want to play anymore. I, and I think you're exactly right. You said something um, that is that I think about all the time. If you if she said, oh, my, uh, my Achilles is sore, people wouldn't even question it. Not wouldn't even for a second. I. But you... Wouldn't bat an eye, but you say, uh, but it's something to do with 
the brain, something to do with mental health. And all of a sudden, everybody is an expert and says, well, why can't you just fight through it? Why can't you just fight through it? And I think in a in a in a really kind of sad way, it's a reflection on how bad we all are. We are as a country about dealing with our own like mental health. You know what I mean? Like that that is the message that we that we get all the time is like, oh, you're just sad. Just push through it. No, like that's not well, you that's should not be, fair. And that you should be. try to make yourself you know, happy in your everyday life. But Jason, a lot of people may not be happy in their everyday life. So they're like, look, I deal with sadness all the time. That's what I was trying to say about the lens. Like yeah. just because you're dealing with something, it doesn't make it okay that you're not happy either. You know, like that that's the thing. Like misery, the co- the, the statement misery loves company. Yeah, let's like, let's change that. Let's get out of that. Because just because you might be sad doesn't mean that they should have to fight through their sadness. Like they might need help. And speaking of that, on the that idea, can we stop silver shaming people? Like I, I just That's a great like, Silver's a great medal. It, you know, who has anybody out there want to go win an Olympic any medal? You know what I mean? You know how I hard start that seeing is. stuff about oh well we'll settle for the <laughs> silver and this and we had to settle for bronze. And I'm like, do you guys know that this is a competition of the greatest athletes in the entire world? And if you make yes. that podium, that means you're the top three at that event. Yes, baby, you did that. And we all need to be acting like Raven Saunders and turning up and twerking. <laughs> and getting our medals and being happy like that is we have to start celebrating more than we just kind of condemn is what I would just say Super excited about this next guest. He is a two-time NBA champion, 11-time NBA All-Star. Very soon, he is going to enter the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. His new book, Letters to a Young Athlete, is available now. Chris Bosch, thank you for uh, coming on the program. Man, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you guys so much for having me. You talked about... um, you thought you'd be playing right now and that your career was yeah. cut short um, in a way that you, that you didn't expect. And it's great to, I, when we came on, it's great to see you, you look great. It's just great to see you. Uh, <laughs> Appreciate it. I, I'm sure that there are, you know, we've been through a traumatic time on earth like this last year. And I'm yeah. sure there's a lot yeah. of people, uh, you know, who who know you and might read this book, might pick it up and who are who have obstacles in their path or dealing with situations where a life has changed in a way they didn't expect. And now they have to figure out what's next. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, what could they find in, in your book and what would you say as, as, as you've gone on your own journey has helped you find your way through this, this path of, of uh, surprise of a place that you didn't think you'd find yourself. Uh, the most powerful part to me, was the conclusion. When I read the mm-hmm. conclusion again, I was like, damn, I don't even read the conclusion. I need to start reading the conclusions more because <laughs> like, this one is really good. I keep forgetting how good it is. You know, we did a good job only because I forget how it ended myself. I, I forget right. The, yeah. the, right. The, the harshness of the truth. Yeah. And that is my last, I won't spoil it, but that's one of my last uh, messages to the reader. 
And I always tell people, um, you know, play every play, have every situation. It's tough to say like it's your last. How cliche is that? Right. But of course. Damn, that really happened to me. You know, when the yeah. coach says, yeah. play every game like it's your last. Like, ah, yeah, take it easy. Yeah. Man, that really happened to me. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just want people to enjoy what they do. And if you don't have that thing, I'm not saying everybody has it. I'm so lucky to have basketball and and so much to the fact where I'm empathetic to the person who loved theater and didn't yeah. have theater class. You know, tons of my friends, you know, that didn't have the same uh, opportunity because of lack of resources. But I think we live in an age now where we can kind of we can get rid of that thought. We can conquer that thought. Um, we can do the things that we want to do. And, and as long as they're positive and, and, and you really connect with it and it speaks to you. Oh, man, that's I'm telling you, I lived it, man. And, and that's after. And don't get me wrong. I felt, you know, you told I, I read a lot of books. And like after basketball was done, it's like, we'll do what you love. I said, man, right. get that out of here. <laughs> you know, my conscience told me right away, do what you love. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, man, I said I didn't want to hear it because it was so mm-hmm. simple, yet it's something that needed to be done. And I'm so glad that I followed it. I wouldn't have um, I wouldn't have published a book, been able to to be a part of a publishing team uh, without it. <laughs> uh, finally, Chris, what are, you, what are you reading right now? What's on the nightstand right now? Right now, Promised Land by Barack Obama. Oh, hello. Woo, boy. Master class, man. First black president. You know, I feel that it's a must read. Not, you know, not only for all human beings, but especially mm-hmm. as a black man in America. I encourage all black men to read that. That's in our history, man. You know, we need to read that. And it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's. He's taking me to class. I was trying to find any way to escape. I want the story out there. Like, what happened? Go frame by frame. That was a clip from the new five-part Netflix docuseries, Untold, which brings fresh eyes to various epic tales from sports. One of those tales is the infamous Malice at the Palace, a night that no one could forget when a melee between the Pistons and the Pacers spilled into the uh, stands. One of the players at the center of the brawl was Pacers forward Jermaine O'Neal. Is featured uh, centrally in the in the episode. He talks in detail about that night in episode one and joins us now. Jermaine O'Neal, welcome to Take Line. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jermaine, one, one of the, the uh, document, uh, the episode closes with uh, Stephen Jackson, yourself saying, man, I don't want to talk about this. Anymore. I'm done. I'm done talking about this. So I'm, thank you for uh, for talking about it uh, one more time. <laughs> um, did you sense Obviously, at that time, the Pacers and the Pistons were were uh, big time rivals. Um, but did you was there a, a point before it ha- before everything kind of occurred where you sensed that the the atmosphere was just a little bit different? Well, honestly, you know, back then everything was super intense. Like you know, the rivalries were real. Um, friendships were put aside. Um, you can never people. That's one thing people don't realize. Like half of us on the Pistons and the Pacers actually were friends. Right. And yeah. so but you couldn't tell because it didn't matter. Right. We had a job to do. We had a job description that we had to fulfill on every single night. And we knew that we were in, in each other's way to get to the ultimate goal. 
And that was, um, you know, that was that was something that fed into, you know, cities. Right. They came to Indianapolis and it was a hard place for them to play. Being in Detroit was a hard place for us to play. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I you're gonna have to, I have so many questions. I'm gonna like as you know, I'm an athlete and I I feel like if I saw one of my teammates run into the stands, yeah, like I malice in the palace. So what was your thoughts when you saw Meta run into the stands? Like what's the first thought that went into your head? Well, let me let me say this first. You know, one of the things because that's that's a very good very good question. <laughs> I got I got I got to say thank you to Netflix for allowing this vision to be a part of an incredible you know uh, series of docs. The um, Way Brothers, uh, Floyd Rust, the uh, director. Uh, I've been trying to do this for ten years, and I wanted to mm-hmm. tell a story. Not again, not to the avid basketball fan, but to the person that I'm actually seeing in boardrooms and and business deals that are asking me about this, but are not NBA yeah. fans, right? And so, you know, it was important for me to be able to tell a story um, that came from, you know, the, the, the people's mouth that was involved. Uh, and it was difficult to get everybody there that we got in this doc, but it was it was something um, that was important to me because we took a lot of heat from that, right? And oh, yeah. and I, I'm, I'm, I'm get to your question, um, but it was important too because it became a cultural issue. Um, yeah. if you, if you hit a doc, like people are really, really saying crazy things. Some of the most respected people in, in media and that I respect, you know, were just taking jabs and wasn't doing the very thing that put them in that position. And that was getting information, real information, right? It was a quick to judgment scenario and to appoint it, you know, allow people to take jabs at us, you know, talk about hip hop, talk about braids, talk about tattoos. And that was a problem for me, but I had to make sure I said that because that, that sits close to my heart because we're still living it 17 years later as, you know, people asking about this stuff all the time and it's anniversaries for whatever reason. And I'm like, man, just, let's just let's create a doc, tell the story, and then we can move on with our lives. But back to watching Ron, first of all, I, I couldn't, it was, it was a situation where you saw it coming. Right. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I said we had just beat the hell out of the Pistons on national television. We knew that was our year. Right. We knew we were better than those guys. They had, and they'd have phenomenally phenomenal, you know, team. And they had a lot of, you know, just coming off a championship. So they had that pedigree. So we knew it was going to be difficult, but we knew it was our time. So when when Ben started throwing all of the armbands, you know, already in yeah. a tough environment. Right. In Detroit. Right. Tough environment. Yeah. We started seeing people get riled up. So we're standing there, we're looking around and then you see little things starting to be thrown. Right. So that's another thing people didn't talk about. Right. It's like little things started to be thrown because if we are out and our energy is running to the crowd and we're like this and, you know, telling them to do to yell and scream, the fans typically do what we ask them to do. Right. And so they were mimicking what Ben, you know, Ben was doing. And, you know, he, th- he threw it, he kept throwing the armbands. And this guy, I don't like to really say his name too much because he still has a special place, you know, uh, in my dislike um, part of my <laughs> to this life. Day? So, to this day? Well, I, I don't think he's re- regretful for what he did, right? And so I think we're all a little bit more mature. Um, but he should, he, he was, instead of being really an ass about it, he probably should have been in some sort of sport because his his aim was impeccable, 
for him to even hit him with that cup. <laughs> it it <laughs> was. Like he, I mean, it was. <laughs> like, the, none of the liquid came out of the cup until it hit him. Like, it was, it was incredible. It was uncanny the way that cup came down. He definitely chose, his decision on occupation was definitely off. He had, you know, and, and, and I think now, honestly, knowing what I know about Ron and how he handled pressure, right? And I think it's important for you guys to know, we, when we did this doc, we didn't record it together. So we did it all separately, right? And so I, the first time I saw what he said was when they gave me the first you know, rough cut of it. And I never knew how he handled pressure. Like, I never heard him talk about that, right? Because mental health back then wasn't a real thing. It was like the death of a, of a career if people thought that you were crazy, right? And so to hear him talk about the five count, right, and how he dealt with that, that it all made sense to me versus now when I, you know, when you think about him running in the stands, he was already to a point of erupting, you know, Literally. And so watching him run into the stands kind of threw me for a loop. But watching everybody else run towards us is what really got me going. You mentioned uh, the way some of the most respected figures in in news media really were talking about this incident from Bob Costas to everybody on CNN on down. You know, there was a uh, I mean, I'll never forget the weeks following this, but it was that moment played into a very specific, irrational fear in this country of, of, you know, black violence against white people. And it just snowballed to the point where uh, people were calling you thugs. Bob Costas was calling you thugs. And it seemed like, and you mentioned this in the, in the doc that like, there was no platform, no way for y'all to put out your perspective to say, this is what happened to us. This is what we were seeing. Like, look, we'll go through it and see, see it from our perspective. There was no opportunity to do that. Um, and in fact, in the wake of that, uh, you know, the, the NBA and David Stern put in their, uh, the dress code dress rules, code. which seemed directly aimed at tamping down this kind of perception of the league as too black, too influenced by hip hop, et cetera. Um, what were those days like where you just couldn't, It, you know, I'm, I'm sure you had a lot of people advising you at that time. Uh, were they telling you just don't say anything at that time? And and what would you like to say now about what was said during those weeks? Well, one, we couldn't. Right. I think the thing that people yeah. don't realize, you know, everything from you know this this whole process went on seven to 10 years, like literally like the Crazy. final thing on this happened 10 years later. Right. And so. Um, you know, we basically had a muzzle, uh, a muzzle on us because we had not only all the criminal stuff that we had to go through, which took a long time, but we had civil and civil was the killer, right? Because now people are suing you. So you have to be careful in what you say and go through this process. And at the same time, while a narrative is being created on you, that isn't really the truth, right? You know, everything, all the clips of the punching, right? You know, you see all of that, but you don't see, you don't see the guy grabbing me around my neck. Like literally before you saw me slide over there for the punch, I had just got a guy that went up behind my neck and grabbed me. And I, I throw him on the table. Mm-hmm. I look to my left and I see Anthony Johnson. So if you go back and look at the clip, you see Anthony Johnson in the brown suit, who's my teammate, had a broken hand. He's on the floor. The Haddad dude is actually standing over him. Right. And so I run over there and I hit him. Right. And at that point, 
It's about leadership, right? In a situation where you can't even believe that, wait, you got on the NBA jersey and now you're in here fighting for your life because they've blocked all of the exits and there's not a police in the building, right? So, you know, it's one of those things that was tough for me, honestly, because it opened not only me, Steve and Ron up for criticism, but the league that I care about so much, right? That gave me an opportunity to live a dream. You know, the Pacers, right? Gave me an opportunity to be the player that I was, you know, obviously Portland drafted me, but Pacers gave me an opportunity to create a footprint. And I'm just watching people just culturally just gut us. And we're being told you cannot say anything, right? And so, you know, this narrative, it was almost like a, it became a part of our body armor, right? Now we're wearing this thing every day, year over year over year over year. And it's becoming a real conversation that, to be quite honest, shouldn't have been. Now, I did understand that the league has a bottom line number that they have to get to. I understood that, right? I understood it was a penalty to pay for anything. But to the level that we had to pay, or at least from my perspective, had to pay, I was not okay with that, especially when I took the NBA to court and won. Did people don't know about that. Did you an apology? Did you ever receive any apologies, basically, after you had won? I did not. I did not. And I understood why. I understood why, yeah. because it's a business. And again, uh, the NBA is, is a special place. It's, it's a very special place. And uh, I don't, even to this point today, I don't feel like I need an apology because I understand it. Uh, I have the right now to to right the wrongs by putting the the, the doc out. And that's that's kind of my, okay, ego. And then if you, if you choose to come to a conclusion now, you have, at least you have the real information. No, I like that. And something else that kind of gets lost in the story is that the season ended up being Reggie Miller's last season. And you especially had been vocal about winning a championship in Indiana. So as you reflect on this, what are your thoughts about Reggie and yourself not being able to, to get that ring? Special. Reggie's, Reggie's always been special to me. Um, to know how sports work, to know how players work, every player that's on the team ain't really for everybody, right? And, you know, in a situation where, where, where Reggie was coming to the end of his career uh, and just coming off of it, you know, basically three years before that off of NBA finals and allow me to come in as a base, a basically unproven player, he could have easily said, not nah, if, if you bring him in, trade me, but he didn't. Right. And he had a conversation with me and said, I'm gonna let you be whatever you want to be as long as you work for it. And that meant the world to me. Um, and to be put in that situation, um, it was so bad. And I guarantee if you ask Reggie, Reggie probably had two more years to play, like literally like two more really good years to play. But the how everything was being dissected. And when I tell you, we lived this right in our own cities um, and everything becoming more race than actual facts. Right. That was a problem. And I don't think Reggie wanted to. Well, matter of fact, I know Reggie didn't want to have to deal with that. Those those questions. And that that level of, of attention that has now become negative attention. And it's not even about the game anymore. Your pep talk for A-Rod. Let's start with you, Mero. Mero, pep talk for A-Rod. Puppy. 
Look at me. Look at me, papi. You are Alex Rodriguez, papi. All right? You're one of the best baseball players of all time. You went to the Yankees and you switched position. You could have been the best shortstop in the history of baseball. Why are you waiting for tonight, papi? Why are you waiting for tonight? Six, 60 days! 60 days, papa. Vámonos, dale! Adam McKay, which character from your universe would have made the best coach for the 80s Lakers? I'm going to go Brian Fantano. Oh, wow. I mean, here's what I like about him. First off, uh, he's got the style. He likes to party. He'd be in the forum club, uh, you know, about an hour left in the game. He'd already be in the forum club. He'd probably wear a neck scarf (laughs) and... Kind of a la Doug Moe and Larry Brown. I miss the days of the neck scarf on dudes. Uh, also, no idea what he's talking about. No real yes. knowledge of basketball, which with that team, uh, all respect to Pat Riley, let's face it, you didn't really need, like Magic Johnson was the conductor. That's so right. I'm going to go Fantana. The only problem is would miss a lot of games from STDs. Uh <laughs> And uh, and the second the notion of sexual harassment started to emerge, which I think was the early 90s, his career is over. Akilah Hughes, who will be the 2022 NBA champion? Okay, so my original take is that, uh, you know, anybody, any team that has the most UK players would win because I'm a big college basketball fan. But uh, I realized that that's hard. They go everywhere. So I'm picking the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, I love Brooklyn. I'm moving back. I can't wait to be there. Their their deck is stacked. Everybody who was injured is healing. (laughs) It is time. We have Kyrie. We got KD. We got James Harden. We got Blake Griffin. (laughs) He can be there for the jokes. There's all kinds of stuff for everybody. Also, the food in Brooklyn, I think it's going to power these boys up. That's all I'm saying. Goodbye. That is it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube for exclusive video clips from this episode, plus my digital series, All Caps NBA, which airs every Friday. Check it out, folks. See you next week. Take Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Carlton Gillespie and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Gerard. Our contributing producers are Caroline Reston, Elijah Cohn, and Jason Gallagher. Engineering, editing, and sound design by Sarah Gibble-Laska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Your home is your place of peace. It's clean. It's welcoming. <sighs> and it's definitely not crawling with invading insects if you use Ortho Home Defense Max. Use it indoors on non-porous surfaces to treat and prevent cockroaches, spiders, and ants for up to 12 months. So your home can stay your place of peace, your work-from-home office, and your family's headquarters. Kill bugs inside, keep bugs outside, and love your home. Visit ortho.com for more.